Okay, so I have a quick question for everyone. Who likes new? Raise your hand if you like new. I do. I, I, like, I like everything about new. I, I love everything. I like the, the new car smell, right? I, I love when babies are brand new, their skin is so soft. I mean, I like, that. I like cracking open a new book. I, I, like, I like coffee on a new morning. I like new, clean, crisp clothes. I, I, like, uh, I like a new update on my Mac or my, my iPhone. I like everything about new. And I don't think I have space up there, so I'm just going to sit right down here. I think it's okay with you guys. I, new to me means... It's going to work, right? It's going to last. Uh, it, it's, it's, I don't have to worry about it. I can be, I, I can be comfortable. I, I'm at ease. I am good. That's what new means to me. I don't know what new means to you, but usually new means those things, and new usually means better. So when Jesus says, listen up, pay attention, I'm making all things new, I, I listen, and you should too. So if you have a Bible, open up to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Go all the way to the back, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. So just go all the way to the end of your Bible, turn a few pages to the left, and you will be at Revelation 21. Listen to what Jesus says, or listen to what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. By the way, I want to draw your attention to what that voice says. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's a theme you're going to hear a lot today. By the way, that's a theme. If you're paying attention to the Bible, you should be picking up. That's everywhere in the Bible. The dwelling place of of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, verse 5, who was seated on the throne. By the way, did you hear that in one of the songs we sang, right? Seated on the throne, right? What's, that? what's, the, what's the, 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 the melody, the lyric? Seated, God and God alone. Help me out here, folks. Seated on, you guys know what I'm talking about. You're just leaving me dangling out here, right? Seated on his throne, I hope you all, your, your, your antennas went, oh, I know what that means. What does that mean? He's seated on his throne, his session, he's ruling with power. We've been singing about this. So now notice in verse 5, he who was seated on the throne, whenever you see that, your mind should be saying, oh, this is the Spirit of God reminding me he is ruling in power. He's seated on his throne. What does he say? Behold, I make all things new. Amen? Amen. Now, you might be saying, yeah, but that's, that's far away in the, some unknown future. Yes and no. In its final completion, yes. But Jesus making all things new is already. It's already and not yet. That's another phrase you'll hear me, you hear me say a lot. The already, not yet. That's a lot of the Christian life. Things are already, but not yet. It's the already part that we want to talk about this morning as we talk about Jesus' Pentecost. Now, when most people think about Pentecost, 
And they think about it through a particular lens, and that is the lens of the Holy Spirit. And we're actually going to look at a little bit larger view of that on the, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in, in Jesus' larger saving act in our series, One Act of Righteousness, and particularly the role the Holy Spirit plays in Jesus' making all things new. Now, to do that, we need to jump into the book of Acts. So leave Revelation, go to Acts chapter 2 with me. And kids, as, you, as your parents are turning to Acts chapter 2, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to read 12 verses, and I would love for you to draw what you're hearing from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, because it's amazing. So draw that and email a picture of that to Hannah, and then I think we're still giving away great prizes for this. So Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. Let me read it to you this morning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. So what's going on is the Holy Spirit falls, and all the disciples, roughly about 120 of them, start speaking in other languages, and all these Jews who are from all over the place are blown away, so they rush in to see what's going on. Verse 6, and at this sound the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that, they, that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So this morning, we're going to answer that very question that these people are asking. What does this mean? And if you've been here for either of the last two weeks, we have read portions of this very chapter, Acts chapter uh, chapter 2 and verse 33, where Peter says what this means. I'm kind of telling you, getting ahead of the story here by saying, Christ exalted at the right hand of God is now pouring out the Holy Spirit, and that is what you see happening here. And so this means three important truths. And notice these three truths share two words in particular. The first one is this. That Pentecost is the public proclamation of the new covenant. Pentecost is the public beginning of the new creation. Pentecost is the public giving of the Holy Spirit to form this new community. So if Jesus' ascension is the transition of Jesus' earthly ministry to his heavenly ministry from time to eternity, from his humiliation to his exaltation, then Pentecost is the transition of the Holy Spirit's ministry from the Old Testament covenant working with the Jews in Israel to the New Testament covenant, covenant working with all people throughout all the world. So we have these two amazing transitional periods. The ascension is Jesus' transition, and Pentecost is the Holy Spirit's transition. Now, because our time this morning is limited, and we already talked about the new creation in Jesus' resurrection, we're going to just focus in on those two, uh, the first and third points. 
the new covenant, the, the public proclamation that the new covenant is here and the, the, the public giving of the Holy Spirit to create the new community that God was forming. So let's look at them one at a time. Pentecost, the public proclamation of this new covenant. But before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about what Pentecost is. Because I'm not sure everyone understands it, so let's back up a little bit. Pentecost is one of the three annual pilgrimage festivals that the Jews in antiquity would practice. Passover and the Feast of Booths being the other, the other two of the three. So there was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And every year, three times a year, the Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. Which is why in Acts chapter 2, it records in verses 9 through 11, why they were saying, Wow, we're hearing all of these Galileans, but they're speaking all of our languages. And, and Luke lists all the various places they've come from. That's because they had all come from their, their areas where they lived to the festival at Jerusalem here at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is the Greek word for this festival. Shabbat is the Hebrew word. And it basically means Pentecost. It's celebrated 50 days after Passover. Okay? So... Do you remember what Passover commemorates for the Jews? Who, who, you guys are Bible scholars. What does Passover commemorate for the Jews? Anyone? The coming out of Egypt. Yes. So they came out of Egypt. So here's the other question. What took place roughly, and you can't answer this one, Babette, because you already got yours in. Um, um, what took place about 50 days after the, the Hebrews came out of Egypt? What took place? Does anybody want to take a guess? I mean, a lot took place, right? Here's a hint. There's a mountain involved. Yes, who said that? David, that's right. David says the Ten Commandments. And I heard someone back there. The giving of the law, that's right. So Passover celebrated the, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, and, and 50 days later, roughly seven weeks, they were received, they were all on Mount Sinai, and they received Torah from God. The giving of the Torah, the law of God. It is the time and the place where they went from being a slave nation to the people of God at that moment. And this is Exodus 20 in your Bibles. At that moment, they received the covenant from God and they became his people. He to be their God, they to be his people. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Revelation chapter 21. They became the recipients of the covenant and were established as the people of God. So every year, even to this year, if you have Jewish, devout Jewish friends... They celebrate Shavuot, Pentecost, because that was the time they became the people of God because they received the covenant from God. But the problem was, and this marks out most of the background of the Old Testament, uh, really from the book of Judges through Malachi, that they could not keep the covenant. So keep your finger in Acts. Open up your table of contents. Just I want to give you a sense of this massive book, the Bible. Um, so look at your table of contents there. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those of you who study your Bible, you know that's called the Pentateuch. That's kind of where it all started, our origin story, so to speak, how it went wrong, how God is fixing it all, how God is creating a people. Well, we understand all that. Then the law is given, and that's pretty much what Exodus and Deuteronomy reminds us about. Okay, so that's the foundation. The rest of your table of contents, so look at... Um, 
So we have Genesis, the first five books, that's the Pentateuch. In Joshua, they're still successful. They're, they're taking the promised land. They're realizing the promise of God. Judges, not so much. That's where the wheels begin to fall off. But So 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and then all the way from Isaiah, all the way to Malachi, is all about their inability to be faithful to the covenant that they got from God. So as you look at your table of contents, that whole thing, so you understand the first five books, that's the, the origin story, where things came from, why they went wrong, and what God is doing to fix it. And in large part, he says, I'm going to give you a covenant. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And then from 1 Samuel, roughly from 1 Samuel to the end of the Bible, the Old Testament, it's them not doing it. It's them not fulfilling the covenant. They kept saying they could, promising they would. Even for a moment, they did until they didn't. And friends... It's not too unlike us, right? I mean, whether you're religious or not, we say we want to be upright people. We make promises that we can be a better person. We can try harder. We can change. And we might even succeed for brief moments of our lives until we don't. Then you got rinse and repeat. You either just keep trying harder or you give up or you change the moral standard or you reinterpret the way the Bible, you now read the Bible to make it fit your lifestyle. Whatever it is, we're not much different than the people of ancient Israel. We can't live up to those standards, right? But here's the thing, God knew even when he gave them the covenant that they wouldn't be able to keep it. His expectation never was that he would throw them a bunch of rules and then they would then live up to it. Now, you might say, well, then why bother with the covenant in the first place? That seems like a cruel joke. Well, it's not. You see, the reality is God's covenant is a reflection of his character. That's who he is, and if he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people, we've got to understand what he's like and how that works, how life works. You ask any Jew today, they'll tell you Torah is the key to how life works. They understand you follow this law and you flourish. So it wasn't like God making arbitrary rules and saying, knowing they can't keep this anyway, but it'll be fun to to watch them fail. That's not how it went. It was an expression of this is my holy character. And if we're going to be in fellowship, this is what you need to abide with too. Here's the problem. Your fallen humanity, you can't. Not even on your best day, could you? Not even when you make all these promises, can you keep it? So I'm going to tell you who I am and bring you into relationship, but this isn't going to do. I'm going to bring to you a new covenant a new covenant I'm going to make with you, one that will change your hearts, not just about changing your behavior, not just about creating an, a culture, an ethnic culture, one that changes the very inside of our hearts. And the way this is going to happen, God says, I'm going to pour my spirit on you. So that, that's, this is the kind of the, the, the theme of the Old Testament. Now, to, to establish this, I want you to see this. So bear with me. We're going to look at the covenant. I'm going to present to you Jeremiah the prophet, who by this time, the people of Israel, after years of disobedience, God finally brought them into exile, and Jeremiah says, okay, here's the overview of what God's going to do, the, the kind of reboot, and then we're going to go to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's going to show us the promise of, of changing our hearts, that this is the new covenant, and how he's going to do it, and then we're going to go back to Acts and see it happening on Pentecost, okay? So with me, go to Jeremiah. I realize that the Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. He's one of the major prophets. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And, and once you get to Jeremiah, it'll be easier because Ezekiel is right after Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. And this is the overview 
of this wonderful new covenant that God is going to bring to his people. Uh, starting at verse 31 of Jeremiah. And we're going to read down to verse 33. And, and I, I just want you to have your, your hearing ears on how many of the themes you sound, that sound familiar from what we just read. So Jeremiah 31, there verse 31 to 33, here's the overview of what God says of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why is he mentioning them both? Remember, they were a divided monarchy, so you had Israel and Judah. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with everyone. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, by the way, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Notice that real quick, friends. The covenant is not just about rule following. He, he puts it in the, the association of a husband and a wife, a love relationship. He says, they broke that. I'm going to give them a new covenant. Verse 33 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that's the overview. God says, this is a new thing I'm doing. Now go to the next, go to the right to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. So this is phenomenal news. God says, this old covenant that you used to, I'm going to bring you a new covenant, and it's not going to be on tablets of stone. It's going to be actually on tablets of flesh. It's going to be your very heart. And here we have Ezekiel talking about it in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone that's in your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Wow, so he's talking about the new covenant. It's about a heart change. Take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, right? And they would have registered with that because what were the Ten Commandments written on? Tablets of stone. He says, no, 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 I'm going to write this on, on flesh in your hearts. Go one chapter to Ezekiel 37, verse 26. So he says, it's a new covenant. I'm going to change your hearts. Verse, uh, Ezekiel 37, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and this will be an everlasting covenant with them. So this new covenant is an everlasting covenant. It's about changing the heart. Okay, this all sounds good. He's going to make us obey him. That, that's going to be great because we're in this mess they're thinking because we couldn't obey him, but God's going to do something radical. But how is he going to do it? That's Ezekiel 39. Go uh, uh, two chapters to the right. Ezekiel 39, verse 29. This is what he says. This is how I'm going to do this. And I will not hide my face anymore from them, when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. How's he going to do it? There it is. I'm going to pour my spirit out on them. Now, you guys jump back to Acts chapter 2. While you're jumping back to Acts chapter 2, let me read you another prophet, Joel, saying the same kind of thing. So you go to Acts chapter 2. This is Joel chapter 2. And it will come to pass afterward... I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. 
Notice this is exactly what Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 quotes. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel. And in the last days it will be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit. So what's going on on Pentecost? This is the public proclamation. The new covenant is here. The spirit of God has fallen down. The old has gone away. A new covenant is here, not based on your raw moral strength, one that will change your heart, not one that's about conforming your behavior, but it will change you from the inside. A covenant not about obeying external laws, but a covenant that's going to change you and put the law in your heart to obey it in its truest sense. So Pentecost is the promise, it's the proclamation and provision of the new covenant of God. Friends, what this means is, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, and the, the, maybe the, the primary or only way you have of growing as a Christian or pursuing your faith is, is means of getting more information, studying the Bible, putting knowledge into your heads, which those are okay, but without a daily understanding a daily reliance on, 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 on this, a radically changed heart, asking God for a changed heart, daily repentance and faith and appreciation of grace. So if your whole understanding of Christianity is, I've just got to know more about the Bible and I've got to try harder, and it's not about asking for a changed heart, what you are doing is you are pursuing the New Testament covenant the same exact way that the Jews pursued the Old Testament covenant. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that there isn't deep, lasting change taking place because you're not relying on the Spirit of God to change the heart. You're relying on law, behavior modification, and it's not going to work. The Jews tried that, and it didn't work, and God said it will not work because you need a changed heart. Now, for sure, you'll be a more moral person, right? I mean, it's, uh, that has some benefit. But wouldn't you rather have rivers of living water flowing from your heart? That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 7, verse 37, 38. Read that. Write that down. Read it later. John says, Jesus says, you'll, those who are thirsty who come to me will have rivers of living water flowing from their heart and John says he was speaking of the Spirit, which he had not yet given, which now happened in Acts chapter 2. See, that's the idea of the Christian faith that's described as a river of living water that flows out of you. Morality is just like a puddle, right, trickling out. We would much rather have what Jesus promises, a radically changed heart. But the question is, how does that then happen? So I want to be clear. What Pentecost symbolizes or signifies, this new covenant's here. The old is done away with. I'm now pouring out my spirit. And we say, yeah, I, I want that. I want a river of living water coming out of my heart. How does that work? That's point number two. Pentecost is the public giving of the Holy Spirit, making this new community. Now, when we talk about Pentecost, this is what people tend to think about Pentecost is the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? But if we don't take it, put it into its larger redemptive historical context, we can think that the Holy Spirit's job or Pentecost is all about kind of giving us spiritual gifts, uh, kind of like maybe being Christian superheroes. We've got some abilities that we can now work with that are a little bit weird, we don't understand very well, but here they are and we want to use them. But friends, 
this is a pivot point in history. This is a pivot point in history. It's not a coincidence that the Spirit comes down on Shavuot, on, on the day of Pentecost. It's not a coincidence that the new covenant publicly begins this day. Remember, what was Passover about? What Passover, what did it signify? The, 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 the deliverance from physical bondage. What did Jesus transform the Passover to be on that night he had, we call the Last Supper? I kind of gave away the answer. But he transformed it to be the deliverance from sin and death. So Passover celebrated deliverance from physical bondage. Jesus transformed the Passover to be the Lord's Supper, a transformation celebration from sin and death. What happened 50 days after Passover? The covenant was made. The Jews became the people of God. What happens here on Pentecost? The new covenant is displayed, and the people of God are transformed as a result. So what we're seeing at Pentecost is the same kind of thing in Exodus 20 when God says, all right, everyone, I've given my covenant and these are my people. And in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, God is saying, all right, everyone, I'm giving the new covenant and these now are my people. Which is why Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Peter preaches the gospel and over 3,000 men and women from all races, tribes, and tongues from all over the then-known world come to know Jesus and are baptized. You see, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost is the turning point that God has done with the old ways. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and he is ascended, exalted, reigning in heaven. Now is the time to get the job done with the new work of God, with the new people of God. Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is reflecting on these realities, says this, in Christ, God has a new dwelling place with his people, the church, made up of the Jew and the Gentile. As a result, the blessings that God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 begin to spread like wildfire all over the globe. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost I'm looking here at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost outlines the whole book. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is what Jesus says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 1 through 7 is the work of God in the city of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 through 12, it goes out into Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 13 to 28, it starts to travel to the ends of the world. Till here we are, Acts chapter 29. Don't look in your Bible. There is no Acts chapter 29. The point I'm getting at is we're in Acts chapter 29. The work is continuing and going out. Friends, just to put this in perspective, within 100 years of the day of Pentecost, the good news of God's redemptive plan traveled further and penetrated deeper in 100 years than the previous 1,000 years of Judaism with the same essential message. How? Why? Because the new covenant came, and the Spirit is enabling the people to do the job. Listen to this amazing statistic. According to the University of Oxford, their global development program, this is what they say, 98% of all the people that have ever lived have lived since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's mind-blowing. 
not, let me say it again, 98% of all the people who have ever lived have lived since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, it is no coincidence that the message of God's salvation to encompass all people is then given to all people at the moment the population begins to expand and explode. That's what Pentecost was about. The real question, however, is this. Are the people in your life hearing this gospel message? Are they hearing the good news of Jesus Christ from you? If they're not hearing it from you, who are they going to hear it from? Now, what I'm not saying, don't, don't hear me say that if you are an engineer, you should leave your engineering job and go to the mission field. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, do you see your engineering job as the mission field? I'm not saying that if you study economics or political science, you know, stop that and go study the theology of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, do you see economics and political science through the theology of the Bible? In other words, are you integrating your life and your faith and understanding that you are on mission because of what we learn in Pentecost? That all of us were given gifts of the, by the Holy Spirit to do one thing, to bear witness to the Son's saving work. Now, for a small few of us, that will include going out, and they sat with us, right, like the Haberchaks. Brent came to know Jesus Christ in this congregation, and now he and his family are out in Papua New Guinea, right? We had Kyle and Krista from this congregation go out to Japan. We have the Patons in, in well, I can't say what country they're in. They're out there doing the same thing. So there are a small amount of us. Jordan Cedeno came to know Jesus Christ in this congregation. Now he's one of the pastors. So some of us do go to the mission field. Some of us go to vocational ministry. But all of us are on task, right? Because that's what the Spirit intends to do. And how he does that, how he makes this work, is he gives us spiritual gifts to build up the church so that we can bear witness to Christ. That's why we have spiritual gifts, Spiritual, and, and, and one day we'll do a series on the Holy Spirit because this was really exciting. And, and I know for those of you who want to know about like the gifts of the Spirit, I'm not giving you that right now. I'm trying to give you the context of the gifts, not necessarily what the gifts do. But the gifts are given, let me say this, to allow us to accomplish our redemptive task. However you're gifted, they are, are given to us to allow us to accomplish our redemptive task and to show the world a foretaste of what that redemptive life looks like now. So you bear fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness in a world that knows none of those things and people see it here. We strive for unity, according to Ephesians 4, when we live in a world that's doing nothing but showing disunity, Right? That they have no idea how to have unity and diversity in community. They don't, but we do. And you know why, right? At the very fountainhead of our faith, we have the unity in diversity in community in the Trinity. So the gifts are given to us for these purposes. I just need to keep, I need a rolling pulpit here. Um, <laughs> the, so the question is, do you know what your gifts are and are you functioning in them? Do you know how, though, if you are a Christian, the Bible says you've been given gifts to help us attain maturity in Christ, to help us maintain unity in Christ, and to get the job done. Do you know what your gifts are? If you do, are you using them? If you don't, let me talk about how you can. 
Now, if you're a note taker, write this down. If you're like saying, I, I, I don't know, I come from a kind of reformed tradition. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit. It's like our crazy uncle. We don't talk about that. Well, the Bible talks about him a lot. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, write that down. Romans chapter 12, verses 12, uh, 6 through 8. First uh, Peter 4, 11. First uh, Corinthians 12 to 14. Paul and Peter, the apostles, take great lengths to talk about the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And what they say is every single one of us, if you are a Christian, has been gifted to help us accomplish our job. So if you don't know what your gifts are, let me just give you three, uh, a quick way to do this, and we got to wrap up. Uh, three words, needs, fruit, and others. Okay. If you don't know how you're gifted by the Spirit so that we can accomplish our job, you, you need to know, because then in some sense, you may not be doing your job, right? So here we go. Needs is the first word. Do not try to get involved in the things you like or you want, right? Because chances are you want the wrong things anyway, and, and probably we don't, have, we don't have ministries for you that fit maybe what you want, right? For example, you'll never hear us ex uh, talk about, hey, we have a ministry, we want to send you on a, a luxury cruise twice a year to reach people who like cruises. So you, you have got to like luxury cruises, uh, fabulous food, and just perpetual vacations. Does anybody want to do that? And then you're never going to hear that. You're going to hear things like, hey, we need a work day, or somebody to change diapers, or somebody to just help. Find the need. Don't, don't wait to do what you want to do. There's a good chance we won't have that, and there's a good chance what you want to do is not the thing that needs to be done. But fill a need. Every week, what you will hear are needs, right? And if you don't know how you're gifted, that's the first thing you do. Um, you, you, they have these, like, spiritual gift inventory things. I think they're kind of weird. I just say, be practical. Find a need, fill a need. When my wife and I got married, we were at this big church, and they had needs in children's ministry. I got involved in children's ministry, and it wasn't probably the wisest thing. And that's my second point, though. So, so what I'm going to say is needs, fruit, and others, all these wrap together. They all go together. The first thing is find a need and fill it. Don't wait for the thing you want to do. It's not going to be there. Find a need and just serve in that need. The second thing is fruit. Is there fruit? Are people being encouraged by what you're doing? Are they being strengthened by what you're, what you're doing? Are they being helped by what you're doing? Are you being encouraged? Are you being strengthened? Are you being helped? Is there spiritual fruit that's coming from it? Even if you feel uncomfortable, even if you feel inadequate, which, by the way, can be a good thing. Right? The last thing you want to do is get involved in the church when you're trying to grow in humility, and you're like, man, I'm pretty good at this stuff. I'm really good at being a servant this way. And we don't want to feed pride, Right? So doing things where the need are may actually humble you because you're not reliant on yourself at that point, and you may get more fruit of humility. So, so needs, find the need and fill the need. Fruit, is there fruit being born? And then lastly, others. Others will tell you, they'll confirm or deny whether or not what you're doing is a gift of the Spirit. They may not put it in those words, but they'll say things like this. You know, thank you so much. I am so encouraged by you. Or, like me, Maybe children's ministry is not for you, right? I mean, that, that, but that, that helps me understand, okay, that's not where I'm going to serve. Listening to the voice of others, asking others around you, where do you think I should serve, right? So need, fruit, others. If you don't know how God has gifted you, those three words will help you figure it out. Needs, fruit, others. Friends, God is creating uh, a new heavens and a new earth, and he's creating a new people, and he's doing that in a new way through the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And what that means is for some of you, um, 
you may have to start doing some new practices, developing some new skills. Maybe you haven't done these things before, and that's okay, because Pentecost is about doing new things. The new covenant works in the context of the new community that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. For others of you, this might simply mean doubling down on spiritual truths that you know, yet you already knew, but were very easy to forget. And you've just been on maybe Christian autopilot. It's very easy to do in, in a culture like ours, like Francis Schaeffer says, is Christ haunted? There's a little bit of excitement that I feel that our culture is shifting because we cannot coast on cultivated Christian civilities, right? It's time to wake up and re-engage. The Christian life, I've told you, the life of Christ, I've said, cannot be lived without the life of Christ, right? The life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ. So for some of you, this means new habits, new ways of doing things, right? It seems awkward. You're going to learn to do that. Others of you, it means to just kind of wake up again and re-engage. For others of you, it may be just wrestling with your very understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. It's not about getting your act together. It's not about moral behavior change. Most likely, you can't. And if you're honest, you won't, at least not perfectly. It's not about living under the old covenant, obeying rules and trying to change my behavior. It's realizing my heart has to be different. My heart has to change, and I can't do that on my own. You weren't intended to. That's what the new covenant is. He puts his spirit in us. Friends, wherever you are on that spectrum, if you just need to develop new habits, if you just need to kind of wake up again and re-engage, or if you just need to understand what is this whole thing about being a Christian, Talk to me, talk to Adam, talk to Jesus, talk to one of your elders, talk to somebody around you that, that maybe as part of this church and ask them, what does that mean? Because that's our job. Whether you're an engineer or insurance salesman or a, a housewife or, or pastor or whatever it might be or a politician, our job is to accomplish the redemptive task about taking the gospel to the world. And we live in exciting times. We really do. They may be scary times, but man, the church flourishes in scary times. And so let's see what the Lord will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this beautiful um, setting. We are blessed. Thank you, Lord, for the people who originally talked about building a new campus on this site and had the foresight, the insight. They had no idea that they were setting us up so well for this time period, Lord. So we're grateful for the way you work providentially when we have no idea what you're doing. Father, may you bless your people, and the way we want to be blessed is, is not more material goods and stuff, not even maybe necessarily health. We want to be blessed to have your spirit completely rule our hearts and change us so that we live on mission, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.